If you do not have trust, that means we continuously, inevitably, and perpetually reinvent the wheel and we go nowhere. You know, you stand on the shoulders of giants enables you to see further than if you were just standing by yourself. Welcome to the PolicyNet podcast. This is the place where top thinkers come to talk concrete data and policy solutions that would reset us along a more equitable and smart path. Today's topic is trust in climate science. We debate how critical it is and how it drives our climate trajectory. The expert today is Mark Howden. He is a vice chair of the IPCC, sharing the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize with other IPCC members and Al Gore. Mark is also the director of the Institute for Climate, Energy and Disaster Solutions at the Australian National University. Mark explains why trust in climate science is central to our collective choices. Trust enables things to happen more smoothly. It reduces the transaction costs between different parties, helps relationships, helps transfer information, helps make good decisions collectively. We are warned, however, against too much or blind trust between scientists and policymakers on climate. The reason why we think too much trust can be problematic is that people can play the game. You can get capture of policymakers by scientists, and similarly, you can have the opposite. And in both cases, you can get suboptimal levels of trust. We politicized and polarized climate science. Why and how to de-escalate? Climate change demands change. We have a direct conflict between the response to climate change informed by science and the lobbying of these very powerful voices, which says, we don't want to change, let us keep on doing what we've done in the past. So a lot of public opinion is actually formed across those political divides. I'm Ionescu's Yulia Shevchuk and I'm your host here. Mark, let's go straight to the core of the issue. At what levels trust in science stands now and why does it matter? I think it varies substantially country to country, social group to social group, and also belief systems influence this as well. But I think on average, what we see is there's a very substantial understanding of climate science and the importance of that. Uh, for example, I can, I can go to uh, a farm in Australia or Sri Lanka or South Africa and talk to a farmer who often isn't well educated but they understand the basics of climate science and climate change. Um, they know that it's important for them. Uh, it affects their systems, their profitability, their families' futures. And, and so they, they've found out about it. They've actually asked questions and, and listened and learnt. And, uh, and I think we often underestimate the level of broad understanding of climate change uh, amongst our populations because those people who are deniers are often noisier than those people who accept the science and just move on with their lives, taking that science into account. Now, what what sort of role, why does it matter? Um, well, trust generally enables things to happen more smoothly. It reduces the transaction costs between different parties. When you have trust, it's more easy uh, to make decisions. It's easier to um, take on board the position of other people um, with some understanding of uh, the circumstances that are making them do particular things or say particular things. Really importantly, a, a tradition in science is that we stand on the shoulders of those who have gone before. So this is a quote, I think, usually attributed to Isaac Newton. Sir Isaac Newton, um, you know, you stand on the shoulders of giants, enables you to see further than if you were just standing by yourself. And, and that's a, a really significant part of the scientific tradition. Uh, when we produce a paper, it allows people to do the same sort of experiments, um, replicate those experiments, confirm the results, 
uh, it enables people to refer to those previous studies so that they can move forward and do their own studies with confidence. So if you do not have trust, you can't do those things to the same extent or even at all. Uh, and so that means we continuously, inevitably, and perpetually reinvent the wheel and we go nowhere. The discussion on trust in science often ends up focusing more on public standing of science and public trust in science. You, however, co-wrote a piece on somehow overlooked angle of trust between scientists and policymakers, meaning between climate science producers and climate science users. Now, that's an interesting angle, especially given our audience here. So could you elaborate why is this specific side of the equation important and how it impacts policymaking and how ultimately our trajectory when it comes to climate change? Well, when we look at action on climate, uh, whether it's emission reduction or adaptation responses, this can happen at an individual level. So, you know, person by person can change their diet or they can, uh, you know, change the insulation in their roof of their house. Um, but it also happens at a policy level. So policymaking particularly is aimed at setting up the environment in which those individual decisions are made. So policy is a really important venue or target for uh, climate science and good climate information. It's why we have entities such as the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So we, we target the climate science and, and understanding of response, climate responses to that specific policy audience. Um, and that is particularly governmental, but increasingly that policy is also industry policy people, but also non-government organisation policy people. So big organisations like Oxfam and similar groups have their own um, policy analytical capability and policy activities. So we see that policy is quite important in various ways. And really importantly, it's a policy which can scale up the individual responses into something which is meaningful and which will allow us to deal with climate change at the global scale and at the national scale where it's really significantly impacting. That's why we did that trust in relation to policymakers and particularly because climate science often have very strong relationships to policymakers where they don't have strong relationships to a butcher or a builder. Going a bit deeper into this, the typical assumption is that high level of trusts are good. However, in your paper, you say that there is a healthy, normal uh, way of mistrusting science. You call it optimal, critical levels of trust, and that this is something required in the whole relationship between scientists and climate science and policymakers. So could you elaborate on that? Yeah, thank you for that question because it's really important. So generally speaking, as I argued before, more trust is good. So trust helps our um, relationships, helps transfer information, helps make good decisions collectively. But we also argue in this paper that you can have too much trust. So if, if you think about that, on the one hand, you know, up to a certain level, more trust is good, you know, more information, uh, stronger relationships is good, but then you have too much trust, then at some level you've got an optimal, a peak trust, the most functional level of trust. And the reason why we think too much trust can be problematic is that people can play the game. So, for example, you can get capture of policymakers by scientists, so the policymakers are uncritical purchasers of scientific information. So they go back to their favourites rather than look at the broad field of possibilities for accessing information. And similarly, you can have the opposite direction. So you can have policymakers capturing 
the science community. So the science community delivers the answers that the policy people want. can typically do this through influencing, say, funding arrangements. And in both cases, you can get very significant suboptimal arrangements. You can get suboptimal levels of trust, trust which causes problems that gets biased information into decision-making. It doesn't seek out the best information. It just seeks out the easiest source of information. And so when you put those pieces of information together, some increasing level of trust is good, but too much trust is bad. We actually end up with that optimal trust. And, and this will be a very variable thing, and it's probably very hard to quantify. But I think when you're actually in that optimal trust zone, you'll actually know it. You'll know that there's people who wrought the system, who abused the system because of special relationships, and you'll know that there's people who, because of lack of trust, are ineffective in their relationship. Sometimes you're in the sweet spot where you can have very, very effective relationships. Thank you. Now let's go into the second major thread of conversation we want to have with you, and that is about politization of science and vice versa, scientization of politics. Something we already talked about with experts during previous podcasts, but would like to discuss this in relation to climate change. So many of the issues at the core of the public political debate right now are, in essence, scientific issues. Climate change is one of them being highly politicized and serving as a prime example of political signaling when it comes to trusting or mistrusting climate science. Why do you think that this field of science is particularly susceptible to politicization, mistrust, and all of the issues we just discussed? It's a really good question, and comes down to it that at almost everything we do as, as a species, as humans, um, is influenced by climate, whether it's the houses we build, the clothes we wear, the energy systems we have. And similarly, almost everything we do affects climate through greenhouse gas emissions and, and land use change, which affects microclimates. And so we have an incredibly strong network of interactions between people and the climate system. And that means there's many, many points where uh, particular influence can be brought to bear. And so if we look at, I think, some of the really critical issues is that we have very, very large sources of greenhouse gas emissions, which are driving up carbon dioxide levels and driving climate change. And they particularly come from industries which are very well established. So they've things like coal mining, thermal power stations, natural gas systems, conventional agriculture, things like that. And so you've got very powerful incumbents, so existing industries who have very strong voices into government. They're very strong economically, and they've often got a wide user base and reliance of customers across the supply chain, etc. So they're very powerful, and they don't necessarily want change. And yet climate change demands change. We can't keep on producing the same amount of carbon dioxide. We can't keep on doing the same things that we've done before. And so we have a direct conflict between the response to climate change informed by science, which says we have to reduce our greenhouse gas emissions, etc., and the lobbying of these very powerful voices, which says we don't want to change. Let us keep on doing what we've done in the past. And so that then translates, I think, often into the political domain uh, where you then get not well-informed policies and often policies or activities which slow things down rather than speed up the transition that we're needing according to the science. So I have a question related to this, but it's uh, a bit of uh, an exploration. You tell me if you agree or disagree with underlying statement in general. 
a lot of public angst and political debate right now seems to go away from natural science and the knowledge coming from those as in whether climate change happens and goes into the area of social and human sciences as in uh, how we adapt, who pays carbon uh, pricing, what is fair transition uh, and all of these things. By default, whatever comes to humans and societies and social sciences is much more debatable than uh, what comes from natural sciences. Do you see this happening or that's not something you identify as an issue now? Uh, look, I think you're right, is that the, in a sense the battleground that I was just describing has moved from the physical sciences uh, into those other sciences and because essentially the fight has been lost over debating whether climate change, you know, whether warming is happening, whether humans are the cause of it, uh, and it's moving into that much more fertile ground for disagreement, which is what do we do about it and how do we do this and who does it, who pays and also, when do we do it? Uh, the questions about uncertainty uh, relate to timing as well. And so so I think uh, those are areas where subjective views and different philosophies have a legitimate place to play in different trajectories. And so in some ways, it's much harder to counter that using science than the natural science and physical sciences uh, where things are fairly much cut and dried nowadays. So the next question, we talk about polarization uh, around climate science and how that impacts uh, policy decisions and overall the climate trajectory. What do you think could be done to depoliticize it and to scale down the current levels of debate and polarization? That sort of political polarization where it occurs, because it's not universal, um, so in some uh, places it's, it's much less prominent than others, is, has to be resolved politically. So it's a political problem and needs a political solution. And that political solution is essentially through leadership. It's through identifying where collectively we need to go um, as communities, as nations, and bringing the the forces to bear of, of, of argument and evidence, uh, collective interest, um, that will then, then start to merge the interests in that particular domain. So So rather than having uh, climate science and climate change as a political football which gets kicked around uh, from one side of the field to the other. We need to recognise this is not a political issue. This is actually something that goes beyond politics. And to solve this, we actually need the long-term apolitical views that are you know, sitting in the middle of this discussion. Having said that, it's going to be very difficult to navigate that given the entrenched nature of positions and given that a lot of public opinion is actually formed across those political divides. So, for example, in Australia, we've got an election coming up. We've had a very, very large survey of people where they um, identify, amongst many other things, their, their top concern. So, you know, what's your number one concern? And almost 30% of Australians say it's climate change. So that's a good number. It's, it's twice as big as the next concern, which is economic and financial issues. So, so it's a very high profile thing. But that number is incredibly variable. If you look at the progressive Greens party, then it's 50%. If you look at the conservative party, the coalition party, it's 8%. So 
So what sounds like a good number um, sitting in the middle um, is actually two polar numbers um, at, at either side. And for those people, the eight percenters, um, to move up to the 30 percent and vice versa, um, actually will require significant leadership um, from those political groups. It can't be done without that political leadership. And at the moment, those entrenched forces that I mentioned before, the incumbent industries and incumbent uh, discourses, are going to prevent that merger from happening, in my view. So I think part of this is about understanding what are the triggers for particular ideologies. And so, so for example, some uh, conservative positions are uh, you know, concerned about the role of government, big government intervening in people's lives. And so, uh, so they see um, perhaps a price on carbon as being sort of one of those interventions or regulation on vehicle emissions as being those interventions. And so as soon as you have a rational response to climate change, but which triggers off those ideological uh, responses, then you get that sort of ideological bundling. So climate change then gets bundled in with that bigger conservative sort of view. However, you know, a, a different debate could actually result in exactly the opposite alignment of a conservative person. So if you think about sort of conservative, progressive sort of spectrum, all positions on that spectrum are legitimate. There's no right and wrongs. They're just different. But you could actually argue with a conservative person that what we actually want to do is safeguard particular values. So conservatism is about safeguarding values. And if to safeguard those values, you need to do something different, then you need to change. So there's a difference between conservatism in values and conservatism in actions. People have often got those two things mixed up. So by being conservative in actions, you may actually be sacrificing and damaging your conservative values. And so we need to have a values-based discussion, um, which shows how to maintain conservative values, which may be about you know, conserving biodiversity in the landscape. It may be about conserving particular ways of life or cultural uh, cultural mores or, you know, um, ways of doing things. If you can actually have that argument which says to do that, you actually need to change what you do, then we actually have an avenue for change, which is probably not that different from the progressive perspective of avenues for change. But you're approached it instead of a negative approach to the conservatives, you approach it with a positive and constructive discussion. Well, who is, uh, in your opinion, uh, supposed to be leading this argument and communicating and shaping the messages? Because shaping the messages is probably half of the debate. Should this be politicians, policymakers, as in bureaucracies and uh, governments and uh, governmental institutions, or uh, uh, scientists and research communities? My own view is leadership can come from anywhere. It, it doesn't align at all with the science domain or with policies and politicians or with community leaders. It can come from all of those and many more. It can come from young people a la Greta Thunberg. Um, and so, so we can get leadership from almost anywhere in our societies. And because of communication methods such as social media, we can increasingly do that and have voices heard, which in the past wouldn't have been heard. And so I think we need to put aside some of those old ideas of leadership and it's largely a political activity and, and actually start to think about leadership being something which is much more distributed and also often very time bound. So for many people, there's, there's a period where they can take on a leadership role, but then they have to hand it on to someone else. 
And handing on that baton is something that ego-driven people find it really hard to do. But outcomes-driven people, people who actually have values and are actually have their eye on, say, a, a more climate-resilient world, they will hand that baton on when they actually realise that they're not the best person to lead any longer. Do you see leadership within the science and knowledge communities? There is leadership on the civil society side uh, and communication on that. There is leadership and communication on the political uh, side. Do you see enough leadership enable communication on the scientific side? Oh, look, I, th I think we do. And I think we've seen immense leadership from all sorts of people who are pushing the envelopes of knowledge and communicating that effectively to many different people. And, and the IPCC is an example of that where, where many different scientists work together to do exactly that. But, um, but broadly speaking, um, I actually don't think scientists are particularly apt or appropriate to, to do political leadership roles, you know, thinking political in the broader sense, not just the party political. And that's because politics is actually very nuanced. It's, uh, it's often very dynamic, creating new structures and taking away old structures. Um, it's uh, seeking out optimization using very different criteria, you know, political criteria, economic criteria, uh, you know, social criteria, and trying to merge them in some sort of, uh, you know, sensible way, um, something which we can't do in a, a scientific way. Um, so having a model of all of those different dimensions, say a politician takes into account, but we can do it in a human brain. Um, we can often do it quite effectively in a human brain. And so, so what I, I say is that there are some scientists who can actually move into that political domain and operate very effectively, but the nature of many scientists um, is that it's not very well suited to that. So rather than a very technocratic approach, I'd like much prefer see a much more human-centric and values-based approach to decision-making, and that's quite different from how many scientists operate. This brings us neatly to the third thread uh, in this podcast um, about the science policy nexus and the impact of knowledge on policy. This is our primary mandate here at the UNESCO Inclusive Policy Lab, and our community is actually composed of knowledge producers and policymakers. So let's get to recommendations, messages you would like to transmit to these two communities. First, when it comes to building a better nexus and to boost the levels of trust between climate scientists and policymakers, what would be your pointers to the two communities? What should they be doing? Uh, talk with each other is a really good start. Um, and so, so, you know, engage with each other, not at a superficial level, but at, at the values level. So what are the really important things to each community? And so almost invariably what you see is that there's a whole series of science values which are actually very different from the community values. So science values typically about, you know, robustness, um, reducing uncertainty, replicability, integration of information, those sorts of things. And they're very different from the community values, you know, which often are about security and safety and prosperity and, um, you know, social connectivity and things like that. And so, so you need to understand what the values are of each system uh, and, and then understand how that those values and those systems can work together more effectively. So to do that, there's a degree of commitment that's needed. There's a degree of transparency and accountability that's needed. So when you say you're going to do something, you make sure that you do it. And there's the degree, I think, of 
uh, respect that's needed for for each other. That means you can overcome when you make a small mistake. Um, you can overcome that and get back on track. We talk here, uh, it's like a dichotomy, two parties, uh, knowledge producers and policymakers. But when it comes to trust, uh, uh, you actually wrote about the role and the need for the fat layer between the two communities, knowledge brokers and someone to smooth the communication and build a trusting relationship between the two. Who are those and what is their role? Why do you think they're important? So when we look at the, the say, the science community, there's there's lots of pressures for scientists to look inwards um, into their science and uh, not look outwards to the needs of, of the broader community. And, and similarly, often scientists um, have information or technologies uh, which they would like to have transferred to the broader community. But as I mentioned before, those scientists aren't necessarily skilled at doing that interface work. They're doing that transfer of knowledge and practice. And so knowledge brokers or engagement officers are often trying to do that bridge between potential users or stakeholders and the information on knowledge generators and you know the research community. And it's often a very thankless task. You know, you're not respected by either community. You know, you're not one of them or, you know, either way. Um, there's often not good career paths for those knowledge brokers. There's often not great job security for those knowledge brokers, those people who bridge the communities. And yet I think they do incredibly valuable work. And so, so I think we need again to, you know, that I used the word respect in my previous answer. We need to actually respect those people and support those people who actually do that interface work between those different communities. At the moment, we're not doing that well, and I think we're the poorer for it. Let's address uh, knowledge communities uh, specifically and knowledge producers. Uh, what are your recommendations in terms of knowledge gap related to the issues we discussed today and ways of aligning better their research activity to policy needs? Well, because policy needs are formed in many cases by that bipolar uh, element, that very contested space. Unfortunately, in a democracy, you might flip from one case to the other. So the policy demands at one time might be very different from the policy demands at another, which makes it very, very challenging to do a, you know, a, a long-term research project and feed into that domain. So part of the discussion here is the researchers need to understand that political domain and find ways of connecting with both ends of that polarised political spectrum. So connecting with the conservative end and the progressive end, for example. So we need to have the science community or research community who are who are not politically naive. We also need to recognise that there's a political economy operating in science. Uh, the same sort of processes that operate in other parts of human society also operate in science. Scientists are human. They make human decisions. You know, there's a preference for the people that you know. There's a preference to make your own group look well. So you get all of those things happening. So one of the really important things is for those knowledge brokers that I talked about before to actually educate the purchasers of science, the stakeholders, so that they actually are able to ask the questions of the research community that are needed to get what they want. And so we need to have more informed research purchasers and research users, but we also at the same time need to have a more informed, policy-informed research community that understands how their information can be used or misused 
and how to better communicate with the broader community who are essentially paying them to do their job. And and I think that is a really critical thing. You know, as scientists, we're not there to feather our own nests. We're actually here to do a job for the broader community. Thank you very much, Mark, for joining us today. It was a great conversation. Thanks very much, Julia. I hope you have a lovely day over there. To our listeners, follow the UNESCO Inclusive Policy Lab and our PolicyNet podcast for more deep debate and data-driven solutions to some of the biggest challenges we face today.